If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you. You can pull it there, pull it up on your phone. We're going to be all in this text back and forth, so you're going to want to have that in front of you so you can see what's going on. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. We are starting a new series today called Life or Death, Killing Our Sin Before It Kills Us. And so for eight weeks, we're going to look at this idea of what it means to put our sin to death and live life by the Spirit. This twofold process that theologians call mortification and vivification. Mortification, putting things to death that no longer belong in your life because you belong to Christ. And vivification, bringing life, cultivating things that now are true of you, that now belong because you belong to Christ. So if you use a gardening analogy... Mortification would be ripping out weeds. It would be taking things out of the garden that don't belong. Vivification would be planting seeds and watering and putting sunlight and growing things that you want to cultivate, that you want to see sprout up. And the Christian life is this twofold process. Those two things happening at the same time. At the same time, there are things that we need to starve and there are things that we need to feed. There are things that we need to bring life to, and there are things that we need to kill. And so as I've been thinking about this series this week and praying, I've been thinking about three kinds of people. Three kinds of people that if we could really grasp what it means to kill our sin by the Spirit, three kinds of people whose lives could be totally changed if we could wrap our minds around this. And the first kind of person that I had in mind is the powerless person the person who feels powerless. You know, already I'm talking about killing sin and something has risen to the top of your mind. You're thinking about that one thing that's existed in your life forever that you feel like you have no power of, that you can't even see your life apart from and you can't even begin to think what it would look like to put that to death. You feel powerless over it. Maybe you've already come to terms with it and just thought, this is a part of who I am. It will never go. It's just, it's just there, and I feel powerless to put it to death. 
if that's you, this series is for you. This series is also for the apathetic. That maybe you're in this room this morning and you feel emotionless, unmoved, dead, numb to the things of the Lord. And you don't know how to shake yourself out of that place. You don't know how to get back to the place where your relationship with God is alive and you want to pursue it and you desire it. This series is for you because it'll shake you out of that place. As Ed Welch says, there's something about war that sharpens the senses, that wakes us up, that gets us out of apathy and being unmoved and numbness. And when we go to war with sin, that'll shake us out of our apathy. And then lastly, this series is for anybody who wants intimacy with God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, that mentally you know things that are true about God and Jesus and salvation and the cross and the resurrection and all these things, but experientially in your heart, you don't, know, you don't know how to cultivate that relationship with him. You don't know how to be near to him. And here's what mortification and vivification, killing sin and bringing things to life is all about. It's all about intimacy with God. It's all about things that stand in your way from getting relationship back with God. It's all about bringing things to life in you that give you more experience of God. That's the whole picture is intimacy with God. And so if you're any of those kind of people, someone who feels powerless, someone who feels apathetic, or someone who wants intimacy with God, this series is for you. And here's what I would say, if we can grab onto this idea, this could be life transforming. This could change how you experience Christianity forever. And so we have to start with this question. We think about killing sin. Are you in the fight? Are you in the fight against sin? J.C. Ryle says this, the child of God has two great marks about him, his inner peace and his inner warfare. That the child of God is always at peace with God and he's never at peace with his sin. Now I want you to think about your life. Is that true of you? That you're marked by inner peace and inner warfare against your sin. When I think about my life and I think when I look at our culture right now, especially in America, doesn't it feel so often like we're marked by the two opposites of those things? That we're marked by inner turmoil and outer warfare. That in our hearts and in our souls, boiling to the top all the time is anger and rage and frustration. And how that comes out is outer warfare against anyone who would stand against us, before us, that would think differently than us. So we go to war with people who have different politics with us. Or we go to war with anyone who could possibly believe in critical race theory. Or we go to war with anyone who would get vaccinated or not vaccinated. And so much rage just in us all the time. But the real Christian, the true Christian, is not marked by inner turmoil and outer warfare. They realize this. The biggest problem is not outside of me, it's inside of me. The biggest problem is not that person I work with or the person I see on the news or the person who does this or that or their sin. My biggest problem is me because there are things in my soul and my heart that have to die, that have to go. And there are things I have to cultivate. And so that's what this series is all about. It's all about getting in the fight. And there's no better passage to throw us right in the middle of the ring than Romans 8 that we just read, where Paul calls us to battle in three ways. First, he shows us the situation. Second, he tells us what's at stake. And third, he shows us how to fight. 
tells us the situation, he tells us what's at stake, and he begins to show us how to fight. So first, the situation. I was, I'm not a soldier of any kind, never could be, but I was reading this week and uh, I was reading about how soldiers always have this terminology they use on the battlefield called key terrain. That if you hold the key terrain on the battlefield, that could have the decisive uh, change in the outcome of that battle. So if you have the high ground, you have a huge advantage. That that positioning on the battlefield could make all the difference in the war. Are we in a place of defensiveness or attack? Do we have the high ground or not? Are we fighting and it looks like we're gonna have victory or are we just trying to get a stalemate? Where are you fighting from? And that's what Paul's talking about here in verses five through 11. And what he does is he says, there's really two places that you can be fighting from in this war against sin. You can be fighting in the flesh or in the spirit. All of human history, everybody sitting in this room can be categorized in two categories, in the spirit or in the flesh. Those are the positions that you can possibly be fighting from. And here's the big idea. One of those two things, being in the flesh or being in the spirit, has decisive control in your life. So I was thinking this week about when I was in a driver's ed in high school. I don't know if you can remember that. I took it at school and they made us do like six months in the classroom before we could get in a car, which is torture for a 15 year old boy who intrinsically knows everything there is to know about driving. But finally we got on the road and like, you know, it's like a 1974, like Ford something. I don't know anything about cars and you get in and like somehow they've put like a steering wheel where it should be and also a steering wheel on the passenger side. And they've put an accelerator and brake on one side and also on the other side. So there's like two people driving the car, which is a bizarre situation. But I remember, I was 15, I knew everything about driving. I I was an expert at it. Uh, And so I'm driving down Lawrence Road and I was approaching the stoplight at what I thought was an appropriate uh, speed. He he thought it was not an appropriate speed. So quite dramatically, he threw his foot on the brake I'd been in the car with my mom many times. I'd seen this where there was no brake involved, just the floorboard. But (laughs) this time there actually was a brake involved. He threw his foot on the brake and slammed us on brakes, started scribbling on his paper too fast into the light. Oh, it was fine. I had plenty of time to slow down. So then we start going. I'm doing 10 and 2 like I know I'm supposed to do. And he thought I was driving too close to the curb. I thought I was fine. He took the wheel and jerked us back into the middle of the lane. And here's what I realized very quickly. I have a steering wheel, he has a steering wheel. I have an accelerator brake, he has the same. But his is more powerful than mine. His overrides mine. Wherever he wants to go, we go. This is what it's like to be in the flesh and in the spirit. There's some sort of decisive power that has control. You may feel like you control the direction of your life, but the reality is something deeper is at work. And Paul gives us, these two categories of in the flesh to tell us what's happening. So look back at verse five. Consider first what it means to be controlled by the flesh. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. This word flesh is Paul's shorthand to basically say, any way to live life apart from God, any kind of life that excludes God, that's what he means by the flesh. And so, We're born into broken relationship with God. Look at verse seven. We're not even in neutral position. We're hostile towards God. We don't want anything to do with him. Verse five, our minds don't even consider him. Our desires aren't for him. Verse eight, 
And ultimately our trajectory is eternity without him, verse six. And then worst of all, look at verses seven and eight. This is, gives us this picture of the controlling force of the flesh. Verse seven, we do not submit to God's law. Indeed, we cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is in the passenger seat holding the controls. And I want you to know this, to be in the flesh, we hear that word flesh and we think, oh, like obvious, blatant, sinful behavior. But being in the flesh doesn't mean to be as bad as you can possibly be. Remember, it just means to live life apart from God. So you can be a church-going, rule-following, moral, outwardly respected person and be living in the flesh. So you think about the, um, Jesus's parable with the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes into the temple and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men doing X, Y, and Z. I mean, can you believe that? I'm, I'm not even like this tax collector. Look at him. I tithe twice a week. I'm generous with all that I have. I follow the law. But Jesus says at the end of that parable, the tax collector goes home justified rather than the Pharisee. But think about him. Outwardly, he's got it all together. He's an upstanding moral citizen. He's a churchgoer. He's a above and beyond churchgoer. Like he tithes. He gives 10% of all that he has. Anybody on the outside would have gone, that guy knows God if anyone knows God. And Paul would say, he's in the flesh. Because all he's doing is trying to separate himself from God by morally following the law to keep a distance between him and God so he owes God nothing. He's in the flesh. Any life apart from God is to live in the flesh. It's a life totally disconnected from God. And this is our default position. We don't have to opt in. We're hostile to God, unable to please him and powerless to do anything about it. But look at verse nine. This is where we have to turn our attention. It's like Paul says to the whole church in Rome, it's almost like he's grabbing them by the face to say, this is all true of people that are in, that are in the flesh, but you, verse nine, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He says to the whole church with all their issues, with all their sin, with all their struggles, with all their doubts across the board, if you know Jesus, you're no longer there. You're no longer powerless and hostile to God. You've been transformed into this totally new reality. The dominating force of your life is no longer the flesh, but the spirit. And what I wanna do just very quickly, if you're taking notes, you're gonna get really frustrated with me right now because this is gonna be quick. And you'll come up to me after and say, I don't have time to write all that down. So just put your pens down. And I just wanna show you five things from this passage that are different about you that have been supernaturally transformed because you're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Verse uh, seven, in the spirit, we have a new relationship with God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Flip that around. Those who are in the spirit, the mind that is set on the spirit is at peace with God. We saw in verse 14, you're now in the family of God. You have a totally new relationship with him. Number two, we have a new nature. Verse nine, you however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, you now, you've been changed to a totally different reality. The spirit of God lives inside of you. 
transforming your nature from the inside out. He doesn't stand on the outside of us and shout commands at us and tell us what to do. No, he comes and transforms us on the inside so that our outward behavior is changed. He has no interest in giving us a to-do list. He gives us a totally different nature. Number three, we have new desires. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So in the flesh, you're thinking about anything other than God. You're only thinking about yourself, but in the spirit, we have a totally new set of desires. God has now changed what we want to do. Christianity isn't uh, doing things that you don't really feel like doing. True Christianity is a new nature that gives you a new mind with new desires that loves the things that God loves, loves the things that the spirit loves, that your mind is set on those things. You get to do what you want to do because your heart and values and priorities are for him. Number four, we have a new power. New power. The same spirit, verse 11, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Do you believe that? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And the result is the opposite of verse eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Flip that. But those who are in the spirit can. Do you know that now because Christ has transferred you to be in the spirit, that God can be pleased with you? It's not just that God's no longer mad at you and he tolerates you but that you can actually have moments and days and long stretches of time where God looks at your life and he is pleased with how you're living. He's delighting in who you're becoming. Our two-year-old daughter right now, she's in this phase where she celebrates everything, like everything, like TMI, but I'll get out of the shower and she'll be like, dad, you took a shower, good job. <laughs> I, I put on like, like um, running type clothes because that's what I like to wear just around the house. And I run sometimes, like not very much, occasionally. But every time she sees me wearing that, she'll go, dad, you went for a run, good job. <laughs> I did that. But she gives me a small taste of how God might feel about me when I make any progress towards sanctification. That he really can be pleased with you. Do you know that? And then finally, verse 11, we have a new destiny. Verse 11, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's what all this means. Killing sin, this whole series, all that we're gonna talk about, this is not, first of all, trying harder and some sort of moral transformation project. In verses five through 11, Paul's not saying, here's two possible ways to live the Christian life. He's saying, hey, Christian, something supernatural has changed inside of you. You're no longer powerless. You're no longer under the decisive control of the flesh. You're in a totally different reality where you're able to fight sin because you have a new nature and new desires and new power and a new relationship with God. It's a supernatural change. You hold the key terrain. In the battle against sin, you're not in a defeated position. You're in a position of victory. Do you know that? Do you know it's possible to kill sin from that position? And so that's what we see. First of all, Paul tells us what the situation is. Second of all, he tells us this. He tells us what the stakes are. 
He tells us what the stakes are. So there's been a decisive change in you. You're no longer in the flesh controlled by the flesh. You're now in the spirit controlled by the spirit. But we know, right? Even just experientially, if not from scripture, we know the battle still goes on. There's still sin in us that has to be put to death that fights against us all the time. And so the spirit has freed us from the ruling power of sin, but sin still fights against, against us. Listen to what Chris Lundegaard says, who has a great book uh, on fighting sin. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the only book he's ever written. And there's only one person in the world named Chris Lundegaard. All right, so look it up, you'll find it. Here's what he says. In what sense has Christ defeated sin in the believer? He has overthrown its rule, weakened its power, and even killed its roots so that it can no longer bear the fruit of eternal death in a believer. Still, and this is amazingly true, sin is sin and its nature and purpose remain unchanged. Its force and success still grab us by the throat. In other words, the war is won, but there are still battles to fight. You know, the classic example of this is World War II. All historians agree, well, I shouldn't say all, I don't know. There's probably someone out there that doesn't. Almost all historians agree, at least, that after D-Day, the war was over. But it wasn't totally over. There were still battles to be fought. The decisive blow had been dealt, but there were still advances to be made captives to be freed, battles to be won. And the same is true of us spiritually, that the decisive blow at D-Day on the cross has been dealt. But there's still battles in the Christian life to be fought. There's still things to kill. And so Paul turns his attentions to these battles and he asks us, if Jesus has already won the war, what's at stake? Look back at verse 12. What's at stake in these battles? So then brothers, We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. This is just restating what we've already seen. You no longer live according to the rule of the flesh. And then he says this in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen famously summarized this verse this way. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And I don't wanna overstate this verse, but I do want it to be extremely clear what Paul is saying here because it's incredibly sobering. So let me just read a a rephrase what he's saying in verse 13. If by the spirit you are killing your sin, take heart because you will live with God forever. But if you're not killing your sin by the spirit and instead to decide to live at peace with it, be warned because you are on the path to hell. This is the reality of what Paul's saying. He's not saying that if you're successful in killing sin, you'll earn salvation. Or if you're unsuccessful at killing sin, you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying though this, there's been such a decisive change in you. You've been supernaturally transformed by the spirit that if there's no evidence of killing sin in you, you don't know God. You're not saved, you're not changed. You're still under the control of the flesh because all those who are under the control of the spirit are led to kill sin. Let me show you that in verse uh, verse 14. Look at the connection between verse 13 and verse 14. This is so important. Again, in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then verse 14, 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Work backwards. How do you know you're a son of God, child of God, if you're led by the Spirit? How do you know if you're led by the Spirit? That word for, to begin for, verse 14, opens it all up. Here's what Paul is saying. You will, li- oh, sorry. you will know that you're led by the Spirit of God, and here's the evidence, if you kill sin. He's putting these two things together. He's saying it, what it means to be led by the Spirit, at least in this situation, is not that God shows you the right person to marry or the right job to take. The definitive guaranteed way that we can know we're led by the Spirit is if we're on the front lines killing sin. That's where the Spirit leads us. So if you wanna know more of the Spirit, if you wanna be led by the Spirit, know that where the Spirit is gonna take you is to the front of the battle. Where the spirit is gonna take you is to show you your sin and to lead you to put it to death. And if that's not happening at all in your life, you you should have no assurance that you know God. But if that's at all true of you, if right now desires are awakening in you to kill sin, to bring back intimacy with God, have great assurance because that means the spirit is leading you there. The sons of God will be led by the spirit of God. The spirit of God leads us to the front lines. And I just wanna say very quickly again, we're not talking at all here about perfection. If you're sitting here and inside of you is going, but man, there's still so much in me wrong. There's still so much in me sinful. We're not talking about being in a place where you don't struggle with sin at all. We're not talking about being freed from the struggle. We're talking about being free to struggle. The struggle is a sign of the spirit. The fight is a sign that you're led by him. It makes me think of Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know how many of you have read that before, but uh, Eustace, um, long story short, goes and finds the dragon's treasure and he puts on the dragon's bracelet and then he's transformed into a dragon. So Aslan has to come and painfully kind of rip away pieces of him to transform him back into a boy and then he throws him into the water and he's transformed back into a boy and then C.S. Lewis says this, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. This is the Christian life. (laughs) Not that you're perfect, but the cure has begun. You're in the fight. You're moving towards God. You're killing sin. You're cultivating the spirit in you. The stakes are high. And so we have to get in the fight. And then lastly, and very quickly, Paul shows us how to start. He shows us how to start. We've seen the situation. We're fighting from the key terrain. The spirit of God now lives in us and is changing us from the inside out. And we've seen what's at stake. We have to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Now, how do we start? How do you wake up tomorrow and kill anger? or lust, or covetousness, or apathy, or greed, or lying? How do you kill that stuff in your life? How do we start? I just wanna give you, I think, five things very quickly. Number one, we have to believe that the old sinful us is unquestionably dead. Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life 
is hidden with Christ and God. If you think you're fighting for victory with God, for relationship with God, you'll never have any progress in killing sin. But if you know you fight from victory, that the death blow has been dealt to the old man and he is dead, you can kill sin. Number two, we have to work the gospel deeply into our souls. You know, we couldn't go all the way back in Romans 8, but Paul starts Romans 8 this way in verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That has to come before, now go kill sin. No condemnation, now go kill sin. You know, it's like the woman in John chapter eight that's about to get stoned. And Jesus says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You have to work that reality deep into your heart that you have acceptance and then comes change. That Jesus says, now neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more, just like he said to her. Number three, we have to cultivate hatred of our sin. Here's the reality of it. You will not kill what you do not hate. If you don't hate your sin, you'll let it stay. You'll let it linger. We'll make peace with it and allow it to stick around, not realizing the danger that we're putting ourselves in. You know, these stories pop up every few years of these people who bring exotic pets into their house. No one learns their lesson. Uh, but here's one from 2011. In 2011, a man was savagely bitten and killed by his pet hippopotamus Humphrey. I didn't know whether y'all think that was funny, but you do. Okay, so it says a lot. Here, he, he had adopted... He had adopted the 2,500-pound creature when it was just five months old and attempted to domesticate it. Quote, Humphrey's like a son to me. He's just like a human. There's a relationship between me and Humphrey, and that's what some people don't understand. Authorities caution people not to keep hippos as pets, as they're impossible to train, can run 30 miles an hour, and cause more deaths than almost every wild animal in the world combined. But we do this with sin all the time. We tolerate it, we excuse it, we explain it away, we ignore it, we just let it live, and we bring it in and give it shelter, not realizing it's killing us all the time. A better story, 10, 10 years later to the month, June 2021, a California man is alive today after shooting a bear who managed to break into his home and attack him. Here's how you deal with sin as a hostile intruder. You give it no quarter, no place to come in. You don't give it a bed and let it lie. You treat it like the enemy that it is and you live. And so we have to cultivate hatred with sin. Number four, we confess all known sin every day. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what I've learned about confession over the years? It feels like defeat, but what it actually is, is victory. Confession is an attacking move against sin. That you lay in your bed every night or drive home from work every afternoon or whenever you have to do it, and you call to mind all the sin in your life from that day that you need to confess, and you bring it to God or you call a friend and you confess it to them, and you know what you're doing in that moment? You're ripping the strangleholds, the strongholds that sin has on your life through confession. 
we have to confess all known sin every day. You know, it was, we had in the prelude, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, you know, in that, uh, in there it says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. I often think, and add a word in, confession breaks the power of canceled sin. That that's how we start to loosen ourselves from it. Number five, ask for the Spirit's help and power. Romans 8, 13, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. We're gonna say so much what it means to kill sin by the Spirit, but let me just give you two quick ways to do it. First of all, Psalm 139, you pray this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. You open yourself up and you say to the Spirit, search me and know me. Show me all of it. Show me all the sin that I can possibly handle to see, which won't even scratch the surface of what actually exists in you. Show it to me. And then you say to the spirit, help me kill it. God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. Call on the spirit to show it to you and ask him to help you kill it. And then lastly, kill sin and community, Hebrews 13, 313. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that killing sin is a community project. That it happens with the help of other believers because we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and we need people all around us who can see our blind spots and say to us, you're being deceived right now. You're being led into sin right now. And instead we go James 5, 16. What a, this is an amazing verse. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and you will be healed. Confess to each other, pray for one another, you'll be healed. Find somebody in your life that knows everything, that sees everything. Confess to them, have them pray for you and be healed. What an incredible verse. Last quote, and then we'll be done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about sin and community. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of the person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. But when you confess your sin to another Christian, the expressed acknowledged sin has lost all its power. He is no longer alone with evil for he has cast off his sin in confession, handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him and now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, I can't wait to go on this journey with you. Here's how we start. We have to know the situation that we fight from the key terrain of the spirit living in us who gives us power over sin. We have to know the stakes that either we're killing sin or sin is killing us and we have to get started by the power of spirit. Go make war on your sin. Let me pray for us. Father, what a picture in Romans chapter eight. What a call into this battle. And so even now, spirit, would you testify with our spirits that we are sons and daughters of God as you come in to confirm the gospel in us, our acceptance before Christ but also to cultivate gospel power in us, to push us out, to fight against sin so that we can know and be assured that we are children of God. 
I pray for this congregation, God, as we walk on this journey together to talk about what it means to kill sin in our lives. Oh God, would you bring healing all over these people out here? Would you kill sin in us by the power of the spirit? Would you cultivate life as we plant seeds of godliness? And would we look like different people because we make war on our sin? Spirit, it's all over this passage. We need your help in this. We have to do this in the spirit, by the spirit. And so we pray, come and do it. We pray it all in Christ's name, amen.